Hey, Fellowship family, it's great to be with you as we get into God's Word right now. We're continuing a series called Peace, and today we're going to be looking at the peace with God. How do we have peace with God, and how do we live in that peace? And so I'm really thankful that you're here. We, uh, last week we introduced this Hebrew word to you, the word shalom, and what do we mean by that? What does the Bible mean when it mentions shalom? Well, it's far more than just the absence of war. It's, it's the complete and total flourishing of your life, not just in your mind or body, but also your soul and your relationship with God. It's also in relationally with people around you. It's, so it's a social aspect of it, the complete flourishing of, uh, with God and with each other. Something not just for you, but for all of humanity. And this, as we read the scriptures, is where everything's headed. It's headed towards peace with God. And after the judgment of God, will come this new peace with a new heaven and a new earth. No more crying, no more, no more pain, no more death. There'll be peace with God. He will be our God. We will be his people. This is a time that we all look forward to that, and we live in the reality of now having peace with God. So what we're going to be talking about today is what is the basis of our peace with God? What does it mean that we have peace with God? What was done to establish this peace, and then how do we live in the reality of that? So with that, I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul really kind of unpacks this picture of peace With God. And while you're turning to Ephesians chapter 2, I want to let you know that we're going to be going to Israel again. We have a trip set up for May 26th through June 6th. And if you have an interest in that trip, we've got four more spaces. Feel free to see me up front after this. But when I travel to Israel, I want to just uh, share with you one of these places we go. This is called the Western Wall. It's probably one of the most famous places if you visit Jerusalem to, uh, to take a, a stop at. And what we have there are Jews, as well as Gentiles, re- uh, respectfully, uh, who go to this wall and pray. And they pray for a restoration of the temple. Now, way back at the time of Jesus, Herod built a temple on the top, the very top of this wall, called the Temple Platform. And uh, in the, uh, now I'm going to move over to the Israeli Museum where they have a scale model of this temple platform at the time of Christ. You can kind of see there's people over to the left of that. It looks more like a Godzilla scene, perhaps. Uh, but this is not, this is a smaller model of it. And you can see that tall building over towards the right on top of that platform. That is the temple. And that's where the Jews worshipped God. And that building around it, or that wall around it, was known as the dividing wall. The dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles could not move into that area, that court, that inner court there, because they were Gentiles. Only Jews were allowed in there. Now Paul knew, as he wrote the book of Ephesians, Paul knew a lot about that dividing wall. That dividing wall was something that um, kept any Gentile that he had with him when he went up to worship away from the worship of God in the temple. Now, God had built that divider. In other words, he he commanded man to build that. Why? Because it protected man from his holiness. 
Sinful humanity cannot stand before the holy presence of God. And so God built that barrier. But what he had built to, to build a respect and a coming through out of sacrifice, man or the Jewish leaders actually used it to divide themselves from the unrighteous, the rest of the world. So it became an area of pride for them. Now, if you were to travel there, I remember that first slide I showed you where we saw the, the western wall. If you move over toward the southern part of the western wall, you'll see these massive boulders. That's not natural rock. That's actually oh, stones that used to be part of the temple. Now, those stones right there are about 6 to 10 feet tall, depending on the ones that you're standing next to. And when the Roman... When the Roman um, army came in 70 AD and destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem, they threw the temple literally over that, that mount that they had built. Fascinating if you walk there. I mean, they didn't have cranes. They literally used leverage and threw them over. And around the turn of the century, this part of the wall was excavated not 2000, 1900, this was excavated, and they came across an inscription, and that inscription was right outside that wall that we just looked at around the temple. Here is the inscription that they, that they found. Can anyone read that? It's in Koine Greek. Anyone want to make a stab at it? Okay, probably not. So I'll interpret it for you. It said this, no stranger is to enter within the barrier round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be responsible, himself responsible, for his ensuing death. Wouldn't it be interesting if we had an inscription like this outside our church this morning? <laughs> so it's not the most, it's not the most welcoming or hospitable uh, greeting there. And they meant business. In other words, the temple guard was instructed to kill any Gentile who walked through that barrier wall. Pretty harsh, isn't it? And Paul knew that well. In Acts chapter 21, he was traveling and went to worship at the temple, being a Jew. And he had an Ephesian named Trophimus. What a great name, Trophimus. And Trophimus went to the temple with him and did not go through the barrier. He stood outside of it, but the Jews thought that Paul took him through the barrier and accused him. And we get this picture of the temple guard rising up in Acts chapter 21 and saying, Men of Israel, help! This is the man, Paul, who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple. He's defiled this holy place. For they previously had seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. This really gets things rolling for Paul's persecution. Because uh, the guard arrested him and literally started tying him up to be flogged. And he said to the Roman guard, do you do this to a Roman citizen? And the Roman, the Roman guard said, what in the world? Yeah, I mean, he, it was against the law to beat a Roman citizen. And so they pulled him back and he appealed to Caesar. This would eventually lead him to go all the way to Rome and make his appeal before Caesar and present the gospel to Caesar himself. But this event here, Paul knew about this dividing wall. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, he's going to write about it. And he's going to talk about this dividing wall, not just separating man from man, as the Jews have made it, but really showing us a deeper spiritual reality through Christ. And that is, this dividing wall really kept us 
from God and man. For the Gentile world, they were limited in worshiping God. But Christ came. And Paul's going to write that. And he's going to talk about three realities. He's going to say, at one time, this is who you were. Before Christ, before peace, before hope. But now, in Christ, this has happened to you. And so then, this is how you should live. And one is the past for how you used to be. One is the past work of Christ and what that means presently for him. And then the present reality of who you are in Christ now and the forever reality that you have because you have peace with God. And I want to read this because I think it really gives a clear picture of the peace we have with Christ. So having said that, look with me into Ephesians chapter 2 beginning with verse 11. Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time, there's that past, who we used to be, You Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh uh, by human hands. Remember, remember this, that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, being Jesus, he's our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And Jesus came and he preached peace to those who were far off, like the Gentile world. And peace to those who were near, like the Jewish world. And through him, we both have access in one spirit by the Father. So then, in other words, present reality and future forever, you're no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being himself the cornerstone. In him the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. (sighs) That was a long passage, wasn't it? But it really gives us a really, it's a long, and I could unpack this through a message series that would go at least 12 weeks. But I'll take 12 minutes to explain what it is, okay? So realize this is going to be a full incomplete, but I'm going to try to give you the nuggets of everything this is about. Let's talk about where he talked about where, 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 who we were before Christ. And he said that we were separated, separated. When I think about this word, and I've researched it this week, it says that there was no connection, no connection to God before Christ. There's parts of your life that are all BC, before Christ came into your life. And those, one of those words that are descriptive that Paul says is you're just separated. You're separated from the people of God, separated from the promises of God, separated from even the reality of God. Then he moves to another descriptor. He says you were alienated. Alienated has this whole con- conversation, and it's kind of relevant even for us today when, it deals, when we deal with immigration. They're outside of the people of God, people who are not a people. Um, and and there was, there's an alienation when it comes to being with the people of God. If you were Jewish, you would refer to everyone who wasn't a Jew as goyim. 
If you were a Greek, you would refer to everyone who wasn't you or a, a Roman citizen as hoi polloi. And, just, and I guess we use it today. Here's our language. Those people. When you talk in that language, you're, you're saying that you're up here and they're down here. The re- you're important, they're less important. Alienated from God. And then strangers is another word he used, a descriptor. This means that they were outside of the kingdom of God and a relationship with God. They didn't know and they weren't following. And so strangers, and you think about most of the world at that time worshipped many gods, and Israel called them to worship one god. That was, that saw, that was seen as, as very limited, very exclusive by the watching world. And to worship one god was so strange. Like the, the common application of this would, like... Um, India right now and Hinduism, they worship multiple gods and every family has their own god that they worship to or multiple gods. And just like that world, to come to one god is a very limiting, uh, a limiting act of worship. And then it says that they were another spiritual descriptor, no hope, no hope. They were out of knowing the plan and the promise of hope that they had in Christ. And then they were godless or without God. And you know, this is seen in our secular world today as a very noble choice. That when people look at our country, they go, it's far too influenced by religion. It's, we're a Christian nation. I want nothing to do with that. Let's just, let's just do a godless life, life without God. And that's seen as a noble choice. And even though it's, it's kind of applauded in today's society, it's, it's still, in reality, is just escape. Escape from wanting authority or any limitation on life. And then in the world, in the world, here this picture is more of a wandering, aimlessly wandering, trying to design meeting without a foundation. So that is who we once were. I've been in an Indian slum, and I've seen people stacked upon people, I've seen when the monsoons come, the water run right down in between the homes, sometimes into the homes. And so mud flo- I mean, dirt floors become mud floors. I've seen raw sewage in the streets where people and children were playing in, okay? And that, that is a picture of brokenness. It's a picture of uncleanliness. It's a picture that I'll never forget in my mind. And... And when I came back to the States and I saw how clean, even though cities can be dirty, I saw how clean things can be here. I'll never forget that environment. And what Paul is saying is, remember who you were without Christ. You were separated, alienated. You were in a spiritual slum. Remember, all of us were. So you may think that Christians got it all together. Folks, we don't. We don't have it together. None of us live this particularly awesome life this week that we go, ha, deserve to walk through these doors today. I mean, none of us do, but all of us have Jesus. And that's why none of us are perfect. We have to, though, follow someone who is perfect. His name is Jesus. And all of us have a story. All of us have a story. Even, like, I came to Jesus at one of my earliest memories, but I still have a story because there have been times there when I chose as a child of God not to live 
as if I were, uh, was a, a follower of Jesus. And we've all had those moments in our lives. So we all know what we're capable of being and doing without Jesus. That is who we once were. But now through Christ, we have a different story that God is writing, right? And he says that you were once separated, but now you're near. That's a picture of you're close with God. You're close with him. And, and whether it was an Old Testament meaning where it says, where Moses said, who has a God like ours who's so near to his people? That was a vision for, for God that he was the, the God who was with them. He wasn't far and away. He was with them. And through Christ, he's near to us. And then we went from being alienated to citizens with a passport, literally, with, with Christ. We're part of his people, the people of God. And then we move from strangers to saints, not because of a righteousness or good works of our own doing, but because the completed work of Jesus. We went from no hope to hope in Christ, where he's our peace and our hope, not because of our works. See, if we have hope based on our works, on our worst day, we will have very little hope. On our best day, we will have a false hope that we're not that bad. And we all like to do that. We all like to look at that other person who's not behaving as they ought. Um, At least I'm not that bad. As long as I'm not that bad, I'm not that. I I don't have those big of problems. And the gospel comes to us and levels us all. And says all of us have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. None of us can save ourselves. Our only hope is Jesus. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. And then that we moved from without God to being with God and in the world to in Christ. Paul would, over his writings, and if you get some time, just read some of his writings. Most of his books or letters that he wrote can be read in under 10 minutes. And you will see that phrase, in Christ, over and over and over. That's who you are. You're in Christ. You're never on your own. You're never without hope. You have hope in God with Christ. So when we look at this of who we once were and who we are, aren't you thankful for the other side of the column? Aren't you thankful that today we can stand here at peace with God, no longer responsible for finding a way to God or making things right with God? God in Christ has done this. I'm so thankful for that. So it asks the question then, how did this happen? How did this happen? Because certainly it wasn't something done by you and me. It was something done by God for us. So it answers the question, why is Christ our only hope for peace? Paul would really detail that. Let's take a look at the three things he says that Christ has done for us on the cross. Because the answer to this question is, one person is the reason for us. His name is Jesus. One work, the cross, is how he accomplished that. So let's look at that. The first thing that Jesus did on the cross is he abolished the hostility. Let's read again that. It says, for he himself is our peace. And he's made us both one, Jew and Gentiles, both one. And he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two Thus or so, making peace. I'm just going to give you a paraphrase. You like paraphrases? I like paraphrases of this passage. Paul is literally saying, you don't need no stinking dividing wall. You don't need that anymore. Because Christ has done that. He's come and he's cleared that away. Paul knew what that dividing 
wall meant for the rest of his life. I mean, he was sent to Rome because that stinking dividing wall. And ultimately, what he would say is what everything that's been comp- Jesus bore that down. In other words, Jew and Gentile can now join together in the worship of God, and everyone can have peace with God. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that hostility, that hostility was still there when he wrote the book of Ephesians. It's interesting, because that didn't happen. The, that wall didn't literally physically get taken down until 70 AD, and he wrote this at an earlier date than that. So he was saying, look, don't Don't worry about Jerusalem. Don't worry about what they constructed there. Don't worry. Jesus tore that down. You don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. He's right here, and he's living in you. He's done this. He's abolished the hostility. See, we need to be reminded of this, because you're going to go away from here, and you're going to mess up this week, because I'm going to go away from here and mess up this week. There's going to be that time. And there's going to be that time and that thought when you mess up where you're going to go, Man, I could better be good today. I better, yeah. We don't really grow up over five years of age, right? When we do this, we operate like this. It's I better be good so that God will be good to me. And then when we get the ticket in the school zone, then we go, what did I ever do to deserve this? God, what are you trying to, you went too fast in a school zone. That's why you got pulled over. Don't blame God on this one. But everything in your relationship with God is because of his work for you in Christ. Christ did that. He abolished it. So anything that you would want to put up as a barrier to God, remember Christ has torn down. Secondly, secondly, Christ recreated a new family. Remember, you get words like aliens and strangers and and, uh, people who are, are separated from God. Here it says that Jesus might create in himself a new man. No longer the distinctions that society has placed on you, or your background have placed on you, or your brokenness or your sin has placed on you. All those descriptors that you might even, in a bad moment or a dark moment of self-talk, remember you're part of a new family. God has recreated that in Christ at the cross, and therefore he made peace. There is nothing that separates you from the love of God. Because Christ came in, he abolished that barrier or that dividing wall, and he recreated us into a new family. So I love how Paul does this. He moves from the old to the new, and Jesus created a new family, a new family of God. Without moral or spiritual distinction, we're all one in Christ. That's why he would say in Galatians 3.28, There's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, male or female, for we are all one in Christ, church. That's who we are. We're part of a new family. So he abolished the hostility, he recreated a new family, and finally he reconciled us together in community. Look what it says, so then. Remember that word? That's a present reality and a future eternity. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, look at these construction terms, being himself being the cornerstone, in whom whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you, every one of you who've 
who've trusted in Christ are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So it's a whole new building, a building rather than the temple. First we go and we read those first parts. He goes, you don't need no stinking wall. And here's what he's saying is, you don't need no stinking temple. (laughs) You don't. Because Christ Jesus is rebuilding a whole new community and a whole new building. He's building us together to be a place that makes the name of Jesus greater on earth as he is in heaven. How can he do that? We have peace with God. We're no longer fighting him. We're no longer separate from him. We're brought together through Christ. So if this is what Jesus, this one person Jesus, with this one act the cross did for us, what's our response? How do we live in response to the peace we have with God? Well, first thing I want you to never forget is this. Rest. Rest in the completed work of Christ. The word shalom was meant to give rest to a people who were, who were struggling with God. Struggling with God. At, at tension with God. Shalom was meant to say rest. Rest in the one true God who loves you. And Jesus was meant to be that shalom from God in our lives. So we would rest in his completed work. Have you done that? In a room this size with as many people as we have, I know that there's some of you, many of you, who believe there's a God, but that's about it. Maybe you grew up in church and you've done, you've tried to be a good person and you think at the end of your life, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you're in. But that flies right into the face of what Jesus did for us. That would be to discount the work of Christ. Folks, we're not in because we work for it or because we're good people. We're in because Christ lived a perfect life He died a final death, and he rose from the dead for our sins. And that having faith in him is not doing more. It's trusting deeper in what he's done. So we're called to rest in him. Have you by faith done that? I want to just invite you before we move on to have a moment where you cross the line of faith. Where you say, God, I get it. I get it. Jesus did everything to bring me back to you, to restore me back to peace and shalom with you. I get it. I trust Jesus. I don't know what that's going to look like tomorrow, but today I get it, I trust in him, and I ask you to make me into a person of your peace. Peace with you, peace with each other. And if that is your heart's desire, and if that is a movement of your faith, welcome to the family. God has abolished anything that stood between you. God is recreating you now into a new family. And he's reconciling you back to the people of God. Rest in his completed work. Secondly, live out your present identity of peace. Over and over, Paul says here, remember. Remember who you once were. Remember what was done for you. Remember. So that we never forget. Because it's so tempting to leave a place like this and just get right back into the normal flow of society and the normal, you know, harried life that we left for just a few minutes to take a break from. Our temptation is to fall back into the past. So Paul says, no, remember who you are in Christ. Don't ever forget that. So are we doing that? You think about the value of the family gathering together. We remember, we remind each other Every time we get together, we're not here because of ourselves. We're here because of Jesus. When we pray, we, we, we confess our dependence on him. 
When we sing, we declare the reality of the work of Christ in our lives. When we preach the word, we call you into trusting and resting in the work of Christ. But we need this, and our relationships need it. So if you're in a relationship with someone, you're married to them, or you're dating them, you need to be, especially if they're a believer, you need to be reminding them who they are in Christ. Because self-talk is destructive. Especially when I mess up, I need someone in my life who can say, hey, remember whose you are. That's not your identity. We need each other to do that. Parents, do you know, especially, especially in the years of middle school and high school, how much of a voice you need to be coming alongside your student and letting them know if they put their faith in Christ, their identity, that they have peace with God. Folks, they're not getting that outside of you. And, and I can't be the only one who teaches this. You have to preach the gospel to your family and your friends and your workmates. Folks, live out your present identity of peace. And don't do it in an arrogant way. Because this is a picture. All of us started in this place, and none of us got out of our, this place because of anything we've done. We've only gotten out because Christ revealed himself to us. We put our faith in him. And he delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the glorious light of his son, Jesus. We're called to live out that present reality. And then finally, we're called to invite others into God's peace. Okay, we do this every week. I preach a message. I call you to to respond to it. And then I pray and we depart. Every week, though, we have to consider this as we pray and then God sends us out through his spirit. Because I just think about this. If I could, and I'm not going to be creepy and do this, so just bear with me on this illustration. If I could put a little tracking unit on you, okay, and you would just drive, and I could just have on my iPad here, I could have, where is the 11 o'clock service 30 minutes after the 11? And we just could see throughout the region where God is going to scatter you in just a few minutes. Wouldn't it be great if you as someone who now has peace with God to be a person of peace in every environment he's going, he's going to take you. Wouldn't that be awesome? See, that's the gospel message. That's the church. This is part of the church, but you are the church. This is a practice of the church, but this doesn't stop when these lights turn off and you're out into the real world. That's what we're called to be. People who invite others into God's peace. And it begins when we realize who we were without Christ. Those are our people, people. We were once there. And we can't tout anything of our intelligence or our background or our accomplishment that became, helped us become people of God. It's only the work of God in our lives that we received as a gift. So remember your people. And invite them into God's peace. I saw a gripping documentary Saturday or Friday night. Cheryl and I had a few hours, and so we watched um, this documentary that's on Amazon Prime, and it's entitled uh, For Sama, and it's uh, documented by this mother named Wa'ad al-Khatib. And Wa'ad lives in Syria, and she was a college student at the University of Aleppo, which is a northern city that rebelled against the Assad government 
And the Assad government, as you may know, are now um, part of, uh, well, they've asked the Russian military to help them. And so Russia has been bombing northern Syria now for, for seven of the nine years of the political unrest in that area. And so uh, well, she, she uh, starts, she's also a videographer. She started filming this city of Aleppo as uh, the two forces clashed. And she started filming all those people who were affected by this war. So she meets a guy and she gets married in the middle of this war. He's a doctor and he works in a makeshift hospital and um, whenever there's a bombing, and all, the little, uh, all the little children come to that hospital and, and the people who've been hit come to that hospital and he tries to patch them up with limital, limited medical supplies. By the way, don't watch this documentary with a child. Um, I'm grown up so I could watch it. But it was still harrowing. I don't know that I've ever seen a more graphic picture of war than this documentary. But she didn't stop. She learns after she gets married that she's pregnant. And she carries this baby nine months through a war. And then she has this little baby, and that's the one in the middle, named Sama. Sama is an Arabic word for sky. Literally wants to focus on, you know, elevated one, an honored one. And she looked for a time that she could tell this story to her grown daughter Uh, after they made it through this conflict. And so that's what she does. She films and speaks to her daughter, who's a little baby, telling her about where she came from in this war in Syria. She develops this thing. I mean, there's, there's bombing and there's There's death, and there's destruction, and there's danger throughout this entire environment. I still remember, just watching this, the noise of explosion on buildings that were hit. And then they started bombing the hospitals. So that at the point of the last days that they were in the city of Aleppo, four of the five hospitals were totally destroyed. They had nowhere to go. They brokered, um, spoiler alert, okay, she ends up getting out and then documents it in a documentary here called For Sama, For Her Daughter. Now, she is safe right now, and she's received a certain amount of notoriety and fame for this documentary. And she is thankful, even though she's still traumatized by the experience of five years, the emotional toll that it took on her body and her mind still plagues her today. But the message of For Sama is for her people. Because there's still people in Syria right now who are under that war, who are strangers and aliens, separated from peace and safety in her own country. And so everything she does today is to call the world's attention for her people. Now think with me. That's the message of Ephesians 2. That this is where you came out of. War with God, war with each other. And Jesus has rescued you from that. So you're no longer at war. You're at peace. And you no longer have to be war with each other. You have the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guarding your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. Remember your people. Remember your people. And remember to be a person of peace with your people. Can I ask you right now, before we close, is there one person God calls to your mind who's far from God? 
who might not today want anything to do with God, but they're in your life. Do you know that one name? Can you just lift that name up to God who knows that person better than they know themselves and ask God right now, God, would you, would you help me to be a person of peace with that person? Just lift him up in prayer right now or her up. It might be a family member. It might be a friend. It might be someone you work with, someone you might live around. See, because that's where the power from this peace is meant to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, flow through our lives so it just doesn't dead end with us, but it moves through us and we extend peace through Christ to the world around us. I told you that I went to Jerusalem and went to that wall that we talked about, the Western Wall, and I went to pray there as a Gentile, respectfully, in a very Jewish setting. You know what I pray for? I pray for a major spiritual awakening in Topeka, Kansas. I pray, folks, you're my people. Topeka's my people right now. And God has us each here to be people of peace and to bring peace into our community through Jesus Christ. So let's be those people. Let's pray for it and let's engage God with his peace and allow his peace through the Holy Spirit to move through in our lives. Would you stand with me as I send you out? And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you, church.